Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Garrett Bruhag, who is a nuclear engineer with a background in fusion reaction. I wrote down fission, but it's fusion, right? Uh, actually, fission. I've transitioned to fusion. Ah. I, I was a fission uh, reactor operator. Oh, damn. Okay. I, you know, I'm not even going to re-record this because that's interesting. <laughs> Garrett's, <laughs> now, Garrett's now at the University of Rochester for uh, graduate school and is doing his thesis at the Laboratory for Laser Energetics, where he apparently works with... Um, I, this would be like the kind of the Dr. Evil uh, laser, one of the largest lasers in the world. Uh, <laughs> And I understand you're using that laser to achieve inertial confinement fusion. Um, so as you, my listeners may have guessed today um, on Decouple, we are cracking the fusion nut. Um, and uh, basically, I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, Garrett here uh, to help us do that. So Garrett, thank you. Welcome to the show. Really happy to be on, Chris. So Garrett, I, I, you know, I, I get people's bona fides out of the way, but I always like to ambush them by just uh, getting them to pretend they're at a dinner party and just do a more human introduction. So tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and if you can kind of let that mold into what motivated you to, to go from fission to fusion research. Yeah, so um, I have kind of a, a strange background in that I grew up in Montana, which is a state with nothing nuclear except for bombs. And I got very, very interested in uh, everything nuclear from rockets. I, I made rockets growing up. When you grow up in rural nowhere, you can do things like that. And uh, found out about nuclear rockets and that whole big wild concept and thought that's something I really want to do. And so I went out to uh, Idaho State University, next state over, which sounds short, but if you've ever been out west, you know that's a really long trip. That's uh, for any, any European listeners, that's like going to another country. And um, what Idaho State University is right next to Idaho National Lab, which is used to be called Argonne West. And it's the uh, one of the big Department of Energy test sites for reactors. It's where the EBR2 fast reactor was made. Uh, the ATR test reactor is out there. It is fission utopia. Uh, and we had a small reactor on campus. And I went out there thinking, I just want to do everything nuclear possible. So I took a tour of every lab because I've never seen any of this stuff before. Uh, I, my job growing up was literally to be a cowboy. So uh, <laughs> you know, tech, technical things I was really excited to get into. And um, I, I took a tour of the reactor lab and we had a particle accelerator lab on campus. And after going to the accelerator lab, I'd, I was talking to one of the engineers there and said, you know, I'll, I'll sweep the floors to get a job. Like, I just want to be involved in any of this. And uh was given a job to work up there as a, as a technician and an assistant to the engineers. Uh, eventually, I became an operator on the accelerators. And then I also got my license to operate our little baby uh, AGN-201 nuclear reactor that we had on campus, fission, fission reactor, uh, that we lovingly would call Agnes. And I just you know, kept, kept moving forward with this primarily particle accelerators, but my, my degree was all focused on fission. Idaho doesn't do or at least ISU really doesn't do any fusion work at all. And so, um, you know, I learned reactor physics and material science and all of the, the good fission things. I did a double major in physics because, as I like to say, I got bullied at the accelerator center if I didn't learn more physics. And um, was really into accelerators. And accelerators have kind of a, a weird connection with fusion because they both need big magnets. They need big electric fields. And there's even schemes to use accelerators to make fusion. Uh and so I, I worked at the Accelerator Center uh, my whole time there. I got an internship out at Fermilab, National Accelerator Lab, which is a big Department of Energy Accelerator Laboratory one summer. was working out there and was just got really, really, really into the idea of fusion, as a lot of uh, young nuclear engineers and physicists do. Uh, it just sounds like a utopia. You know, it's this limitless energy forever straight from hydrogen. What more could you want? And you you lie to yourself in your head that it's going to be easier because people don't hate it. You know, there's no political baggage. You think. Right, right. And uh, so I applied and I got I went out to an internship at Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, which is one of the DOE's uh, fusion labs in Princeton that focuses on magnetic fusion. 
uh, did some interesting stuff there with liquid metal diverters, learned a lot about tokamaks, uh, didn't really like them that much. And that's when I learned about inertial confinement. And I'd heard of it before in the context of uh, a facility we have here in America called the National Ignition Facility, which is the largest laser in the world in California. And I'd always heard of it in context of it. That's just bomb stuff that just has to do with hydrogen bombs and just who cares. And mm -hmm. uh, there were some very compelling presenters, people that are now um, colleagues, actually, of mine, who sold me on the idea that this this ICF thing seemed really interesting. And there was a lot of cool stuff happening. And, you know, as a bonus, they have money because uh, there is a lot of national defense work connected with ICF. And so uh, myself and hilariously enough, one other intern at the exact same year who now uh, in non-corona time sits next to me at the laboratory. Right. Uh, we both went, we both applied for the University of Rochester and came out to work at the uh, LLE as we call it for short, uh, Laboratory for Laser Energetics on, um, you know, we do a wide variety of things. We, our primary goal is inertial fusion, but we also study high energy density physics, which is what happens when you compress matter to extreme states, like say the center of the sun or the center of some of these gas planet, gas giants. And we also do some, a lot of uh, plasma physics, laser plasma physics, because we have these enormous lasers and can do wow. some pretty wild stuff with them. Okay, so being conscious um, that my audience is, is generally super educated and uh, very interested in energy, especially fission, but maybe less so in fusion. Um, and just trying to also just dumb things down for my own understanding. Um, I wanted to try and kind of define a few terms before we get started. You've already, you've already talked about a few of these things, but um, you know, it's going to be tempting to go into a, a ton of detail and really nerd out on each thing, but I want to keep things pretty broad. So, I mean, in, in terms of my goals for today, I want to, I want to, you know, better understand the topic in terms of just the basic terms, but I really am looking forward to diving into the impracticalities or practicalities of, of fusion. So just to sort of get a few things out of the way, um, you know, you, you talked about magnetic versus inertial confinement. Um, so what I'll do is maybe try and give you my very basic understanding and see if you can kind of help me yeah, sure. <laughs> better. And maybe that will be more suitable to my listeners. Um, but I really should assume they know more than me on this. So, I mean, basically from what I understand, um, you're going to have to heat up these isotopes of hydrogen to extremely high temperatures to strip the electrons and fuse these positively charged protons together. They really don't want to be together. So you need to create an environment in which that can happen. Um, and so you've got to kind of in, in the in the magnetic one you got to you got to suspend this plasma in a vacuum, and then uh, in the inertial one that's what I don't really understand. It sounds like you're kind of pulsing energy at a little fuel pellet. It sounds like you're just setting off a series of mini hydrogen bombs. Like you know, me. that's actually the goal. So um, if we can back up slightly, it would make more sense if we talk about what it takes to make fusion happen, and then why why these two approaches have become key become a little more clear, or why they do it. So, but, you know, the, the main focus. Yeah. So fusion, um, we, if we could get away without stripping the electrons, you talked about that before we would, but we can't because we need extremely high temperatures because the, the cross section, as any of these nuclear engineers know, the probability of a reaction happening for fusion at any normal temperature, anything that any human has ever encountered, even if you're melting metal or lighting fires or whatever, the probability of a fusion reaction is basically zero. We have to get very, 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 very hot. Um, something in the 150 million degrees Kelvin, although all of us in plasma physics hate Kelvin because it actually temperature, the term of the term temperature gets fuzzy and weird at uh, mm. in plasmas. But we'll, we'll work in Kelvin because it's what people know. You actually will hear EV electron volt or kilo electron volt is the way we like to talk about it because we have to put so much energy in. One mm. electron volt is about 11,000 Kelvin. And to get uh, deuterium-tritium fusion, which is the easiest fusion to make happen, easiest fusion reaction, you have to hit 5,000 electron volts to 15,000 electron volts, maybe even 25,000 electron volts, depending on your um, confinement scheme. So that's one part of it. The, the incredible temperatures already tell you, you can't hold this in a box. You can't, you can't put it in a, in a fuel pen. You can't do anything normal to, mm -hmm. to grab it because no material could ever sustain could ever handle these uh, unbelievable temperatures. The other part of it is we have to take that really, really hot fuel and we need to push as much of it together as we can for as long as we can. But the goal is to get a chain reaction, just like in fission. 
And to do that, we every time fusion happens, these hot particles will come back out. Hot ions are made, neutrons are ejected, gamma rays. But the ions are what we care about because they can heat up more fusion fuel. And there's a uh, criterion called the Lawson criterion. You also talk here, talk about the triple product, all these weird fusion physics things that we won't dive into. But basically, if you can get the fuel hot enough and dense enough and hold it long enough, you can get a chain reaction. And the t- if you think about that, you have a couple con- uh, parameters to play with. Temperature is actually not much. You don't have much range because you have to get over a certain minimum temperature to get any appreciable amount of fusion. So you're kind of stuck there uh, in that range I told you about five to 25 kilo electron volts uh, for DT. And that, I'm primarily going to talk about DT because the other fuels are way harder. Um, mm-hmm. But the other the other two things you can play with are pressure and confinement time. And you think about something that hot, that that insanely energetic, it's going to be hard to hold it in one place for very long. So inertial confinement goes for screw trying to confine it very long. Let's just push it together really, really, really hard like a diesel engine. Hmm. We'll, we'll just slam as much fuel as hot as we possibly can get it into one tiny place and let it just explode in the one way we actually know fusion works, which is just like the hydrogen bomb. It, it sounds ridiculous, but you know, if you think about it, it is the one way that we have made a fusion chain reaction work as humans. It's wow. that energy out of hydrogen bombs. Now you can't do anything with that. You, you know, you just destroy mountains or whatever there, there were some crazy cold war plans to try to make power with those, but that's insanity. Uh, and they were going to do major kind of, uh, not, I don't know if geoengineering is the right term, but they were going to blast new canals and create ports yeah, and yeah. things like project that, right? Yeah. Project Pacer. Pacer was the, the power project where they would blow them up in um, salt caverns and boil water. And, oh, and like liquid, yeah, molten salt reactor. <laughs> <laughs> really serious molten salt reactor. <laughs> Just I, uh, get the Permian salts liquid and uh, yeah, run that for a while. I yeah, yeah, I think I think it was spec'd out for like half a terawatt electric or something. It was going to be pretty pretty nuts. Um, wow. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting aside. I, I want to dive down that so bad that we'll resist. <laughs> uh, so magnetic confinement goes the other direction. And these are two extremes. There's actually a, I'll get torn apart, I'm sure, by someone who's an expert in one of the in-between concepts. But the two big extremes that you see are inertial confinement, laser driven, I should say, inertial confinement, where we just, we're going fast, we're going hard. And magnetic confinement, where the, think like tokamaks and stellarators, tokamaks are eater, stellarators are this big thing called W7X over in Germany, which you've ever seen a picture of it. It looks like a some sort of Lovecraftian nightmare made of magnets. Um, but this they is the go- donut, like the, the metal yeah. donut looking thing or the negative space donut. Okay. Yeah. The twisty donut. Yeah. Uh, so those, those schemes go for lower densities. They often have densities that you would primarily, you would almost think of as vacuum. Um, they're, they're just hot vacuum, uh, but they're, they drive their temperatures up and using magnetic fields rather than just trying to pulse it. They want to hold it the whole time. Well, if you're going to hold it, we already said you can't hold it with anything, re- any material. So we're going to hold yeah. it with magnetic fields, which we know plasmas respond to. And we'll try to just hold it in one place for a very long time. Now, the plasma is flowing, but the by hold it, I actually mean keep that density. So that confinement time isn't, uh, you know, hold a particle in one place one spot in space. It's just how long can you keep that same pressure or density, depending on how you want to think about it. And they go for very, very long confinement times with the eventual goal being um, continuous operation, where they would just turn the reactor on, they would get a chain reaction firing up, and it would just burn and burn and burn and burn like a like a torch almost. Mm-hmm. And just adding more more fuel as you yeah, go. Yeah, you just so- add more fuel, extract the, the ash. I Whereas inertial, ash it, yeah, we call it ash. It's not okay. actually ash; it's helium that comes okay. up. <laughs> yeah, helium. I, I hear, this was a really cool thing I, that I was, you know, I haven't looked at like basics, basic chemistry in a while, but uh, like helium is, um, I guess, produced by decay products from uh, deep inside the earth. But it, it, because it's a noble gas and because it's uh, such a light element, it just diffuses off into the atmosphere. It's not held by Earth's magnetic field, so we're we're actually. You know, I don't know how urgent it is, but we're eventually going to run out of helium for a lot of our industrial processes, I heard. 
Yeah, so helium is is a limited supply. Um, it comes from radioactive decay, primarily of uranium, as far as I understand it, and yeah. gets trapped in the same caverns that trap natural gas. Uh, the largest supplier of helium in the world, I believe, is Exxon Mobil, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Texas natural gas vents. Um, we'll get into helium a yeah. bit when we talk about how to cool these these crazy magnets. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But um, in terms of like the different fuels you mentioned, I mean, like a lot of our conversation is just distinguishing like what happens in the sun and trying to create those sunlight conditions on Earth in terms of intense pressures and heat. Yeah, and so, the, like that. so speaking and, of the sun, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of funny thing to think about, everyone likes to go back to the sun with fusion. The sun has some very impressive pressures and densities. I'll admit that. And its confinement time is long. Its temperature is actually very low by any fusion standard. Hmm. And the power density of the sun is no more than your own body. You make what? as much, yeah, you make as much heat per cubic meter as the center of the sun does. So we could never do, even if we could somehow pull off the very crazy proton-proton chain reaction or fusion reaction that's happening in the sun, which spoiler alert, we probably never can. Uh, the power density would be almost worthless. That's incredible. <laughs> and so that's why we use these isotopes of hydrogen like deuterium, which has uh, a proton and two neutrons and tritium, which has uh, three neutrons and one proton. Right. And, and they're uh, a thousand times you, more energetic. You, or? you went one neutron over. Uh, Oops, for both of them. Yeah. Okay. So deuterium has one neutron yes. and uh, tritium has two and tritium is radioactive, which is important because it it's very, very rare. Uh, it's got about 12 hour half or 12 year half life. And so for any future fusion schemes, and this gets into the economic issues, we have to make our own tritium. Right. Uh, so I heard that there's researching, apparently there's about seven kilograms that exist on Earth naturally, I think from cosmic rays dinging hydrogen high in the atmosphere. And then our pressurized heavy water reactors like Candus in Canada and India make just under three kilograms a year. Yeah. And, uh, and ITER needs something like 125 kilograms a year. So it's it's that is a major, major issue, I guess. Yeah, so tritium is also made intentionally. Uh, the Department of Energy makes it right now because nuclear weapons require tritium. But yeah. uh, And I assume the Russians and French and other people do. But you're right. Uh, the primary source of it, it, as far as I know, is um, CANDUS and other pressurized heavy water reactors. I know that my lab here in Rochester, New York, utilizes tritium from CANDUS. Yeah. Okay. Another export along with our cobalt 60. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but I mean, the reason for using the deuterium tritium is because they're so much more energetic than just proton, proton or hydrogen, hydrogen, right? Is that the uh, rationale? So it's not energetic. It's that the probability or the cross section uh-huh. um, is dramatically higher. Okay. Uh, deuterium tritium at its peak and its cross section, which Oh man, don't quote me on it, but I want to say it's about a hundred kilo electron volts is where the cross section peaks out. Uh, so very, very hot, but uh, you know, a hundred times, almost a hundred times hotter than we were talking about before, mm. um, is about five barns, which if you know anything, if you know any fission numbers off the top of your head is actually about the fast fission cross section of, um, something like plutonium or uranium. Okay. So it tells you that deuterium tritium can get very, very, very reactive if you get it super hot. Right. Now, there are other options in terms of deuterium, deuterium and, and like hydrogen or proton boron and things like that. And, and the reason that they come up, I think, is because one of the major, major kind of engineering drawbacks of fusion is how many high energy neutrons you produce um, yeah. compared to fission or, you know, compared to anything else. Right. And that those neutrons just just rip through and destroy basically every material known to man, essentially. I was reading somewhere that, you know, in terms of the inner wall of, of ITER, that the inner wall of that vacuum chamber, every element there will be um, kind of knocked, moved out of its out of its lattice, something like 30 times uh, a year or something. It was just crazy, right? Like these neutrons, I, I didn't really know much about particle physics, but neutrons just... Yeah, they're, they're yeah. Like drunk, rowdy guys at a bar that just crash through everything, it sounds like. Neutrons are about the worst thing you can imagine from shielding perspective, and they're real good at destroying stuff. And DT is an extra nightmare in that it doesn't make, you know, when we talk about fast neutrons in the fission field, we talk somewhere around 2 MeV neutrons, and those are, those are pretty nasty guys. DT makes 14.1 MeV neutrons. They just wreck things. They actually hit so hard that they can knock 
they have a pretty high cross section of knocking other neutrons out of uh, materials. So you have to watch out with a lot of things, a lot of heavier elements, for instance. Uh, you, you can get neutron multiplication, which is something we'll actually rely on to try to breed more tritium. Right. Uh, but it makes, you're right, it makes the, the actual damage to the reactor really, really high. So the number I have here is that Eater expects something like three displacements of every atom in the reactor wall uh, during the lifetime of the reactor. Which, remember, Eater won't be running very often. It's got it's a research machine. It's got a lot of limitations. Um, Demo, which would be the power reactor built after Eater, assuming Eater succeeds, which will be a bit bigger, a bit more powerful, but the same general scheme as Eater, uh, will expect something like 30 displacements per year. Um, fission, the, the number I got was somewhere around three displacements per year. And the, there's a difference, too, in the sort of damage that they do. If you think about a normal fission reactor, in any sort of water-based fission reactor, um, the, the reactor itself is really, really simple. And a mm. lot of the stuff that's actually going to get damaged is things that you can that you're going to replace or you can replace you think like fuel rods who, mm -hmm. who cares if fuel, fuel rods need to only last so many years give them as many displacements as they want you know as, as they can possibly take and then the outside of the fission reactor is just a big solid chunk of steel i mean it's this huge thick steel casing or in the case of the can do's i think it's a bunch of little steel tubes yeah. either way you're not you're not looking at something that is ex extremely complex um and and or very expensive materials any fusion scheme you think of has some very expensive complicated pieces of equipment involved magnetic schemes will be damaging the magnets these superconducting very expensive very sensitive magnets are going to be bombarded with neutrons inertial confinement some schemes can kind of the, the we're lucky in that we can put the lasers far away but the optics for the lasers the actual um you know, lenses and mirrors and windows and whatever is transmitting the laser beam in, it's going to get beat up. And that is a serious problem when you have these neutrons that are more damaging. If you only had to deal with the output of a fission reactor, it would actually be easier. But fusion produces far more uh, neutrons per unit energy than fission does. And this is, interestingly enough, this actually holds true for a lot of the sexier advanced fuels as, as well. Uh, deuterium tritium makes about 80% of its energy is neutrons deuterium deuterium does about 60 percent of its energy as neutrons and then even deuterium helium 3 which is often held up as this magical amazing spaceship fuel that, because there's no helium 3 on earth or not much to speak of um so we'd have to go get it from the moon or jupiter or somewhere like that uh even i know it's it's nuts but even that fuel which is very very energy dense dhe3 is exciting for space for its energy density um but even that fuel produces something like 5% of the energy as neutrons from side reactions. And fission right. is that order of magnitude. Or I, I think it's actually a little bit under D helium-3. Right. And so, sure, fission makes gamma rays, but gamma rays actually have been found to um, uh, help mediate a lot of that damage, interestingly enough. They, they tend to wow. um, help with what the neutrons do. Yeah. So in fission, it's super low energy neutrons. They're moving a very short distance. They're damaging structures that you're swapping out anyway in terms of mostly the fuel bundles if they're only traveling like less than a centimeter. And there's water all around it to even further moderate the energy of the of the neutrons. I think that. Yeah, that's exactly. Exactly. Okay. And then so, even whatever they're going to hit outside of that, it's just a chunk of steel. It's just right. a big steel pressure vessel. Yeah. So... In terms of like preparing for this interview, I ended up reading an article that was recommended to me by a couple of people. It's called The Trouble with Fusion, written by Lawrence M. Lidsky. It's written in 1983. <laughs> so it's this 39-year-old piece of writing. I was like, how relevant is this going to be? This is kind of ridiculous. But I read through it, and it was it was pretty fascinating. And, uh, and surprisingly, especially just when thinking about ITER, um, which is our dominant deuterium-tritium um, fusion technology that we're working on, um, it, it describes the, you know, the basic reactor uh, structure just as it is, you know, being built as we speak. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he talks about is this whole kind of archetype of the scientist versus the engineer. And that 
um, you know, basically that, you know, engineers are concerned with pragmatics around, you know, making things economic and thinking a lot about sort of the material properties that are going to make things durable and stuff like that. Whereas scientists are much more focused on just kind of proving that something can be done and are, are maybe following more of a pure science agenda and just doing things for the sake of discovery, which is totally awesome. But I think where you and I were kind of coming to this conversation was like, well, let's think about this technology pragmatically in terms of its, you know, the role of ultra low emissions, uh, atomic technologies in terms of decarbonization. Um, and so I think we're kind of looking at it as well from that, that engineering perspective, but you know, just that idea that a, a piece of writing that 30 that's 39 years old. I mean, the joke is that fusion is always 30 years away, but the fact that in those 30 years, we're not talking about a radically different technology. We haven't problem solved things. And, you know, it, I can't think of another area of technology where you'd be talking about essentially the same materials, the same basic design, you know, 40 years later. Is that like a... Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's a really good criticism. And that's a criticism that the community itself, um, especially a lot of us younger guys have been making, because you're right, either... Eater was born out of agreements between, if I remember right, Reagan and Gorbachev. That's okay. that's how far back this whole concept goes. And it's great to have international collaboration on these things. Fusion is really hard. Initially, fusion was born out of secrecy, and everyone realized that was dumb because there was no way we were going to get this thing to happen quickly. The U.S. and the Soviets and the Brits were super secretive, and they all kind of realized they weren't going to get anywhere. And so they started sharing results, and that's how... Um, like the Soviets invented the tokamak. The United States didn't even know about it until they showed, right. showed one off. But uh, yeah, the the issue that, I don't know, Eater, Eater's hard because it's it's got a lot of promise from a fusion physics standpoint, but it's this big, very expensive, very slow moving project. And it's important to get to what's called burning plasma. That's what Eater's trying to make happen, which is a, a self-sustaining, a plasma that... Um, generate puts more energy into itself than the heat external heating sources do that's an important physics goal but you you really do have to question if this is the best way forward with so much money so much effort on something that like you said is really old school with a lot of a lot of big advancements having happened since then like high temperature superconductors uh which are a huge deal either will be using low temperature superconductors that must be helium cooled and have serious limits on their magnetic fields they can reach and in magnetic confined fusion the field you can reach is everything mm -hmm. uh, yeah and and then if you look at stuff like nif the the national ignition facility it's it's also a very problematic um got a very problematic history with a lot of you know big bureaucratic um hang-ups and whatnot but it has all it it's moved forward based on advancements in laser technology and has made some pretty big strides and may have actually achieved um a burning plasma this year depending on what the new papers say mm -hmm. but it's it's yeah it's it's still moving slow and those criticisms still hold just because the the community is kind of i i don't know if it's a money thing because we have limited funding or if it's just like the big the big names push things forward uh, institutional inertia it's hard yeah. to tell yeah, it seems like inertia is a big thing. But yeah, I mean, one of the kind of poetic elements of Eater is that you have to create temperatures far hotter than the sun. And you have to create basically the lowest temperature possible or within a few degrees Kelvin of it with the yeah. um, with the magnets. And then you need to sort of insulate one from the other and you need to prevent the neutrons that are shooting off of this plasma from destroying your magnets. Like it's just, it just seems like... Well, no, those magnets are... Um... A safety concern too. They they have about a ton of TNT stored in them in terms of energy, and they can they can release it if they're damaged improperly. Is that so what quenching is? Yeah. So there there's well, you can quench in a way that um, doesn't blow up, and you can quench in a way that does. And we're very <laughs> we're very good at protecting our magnets nowadays. The you can thank the accelerator community for that. We learned the hard way. But um, yeah, I mean it's. It's serious things to to think about, and the, when the like you said, when those magnets are getting abused by the neutrons, um, there's specifically in tokamaks. There's also concept. There's problems known as disruptions, uh, and elms, and all sorts of weird plasma effects where sometimes the plasma doesn't like to stay confined and tries to jump out at the wall. Um, it's a it's a, it's a it's a very big complicated problem, which is also what makes it such a good problem for international collaboration. Right. Uh, my my biggest issue, and I'm sure it's yours too, is when people point towards it as the solution for fighting climate change, because 
we have to fight climate change now, not in 2060, when maybe we have working prototype fusion reactors that might start looking economically competitive, maybe kind of sort of if we're lucky. Yeah, yeah. Just can you clarify one thing for me with Eater? Because the, the, the heat that you're going to turn into steam to run a turbine, which Eater's not doing, that, that's the plan of, you know, if Eater works, then we're going to build a, a power plant based on its technology. Yeah, that, that would be demo. But if we're gonna um, if we're gonna be heating stuff, is that is are you taking the heat that's kind of radiating off of the plasma as like as like thermal heat, or is it the neutrons that are going to be warming up the water, say that's going to spin it? Makes uh, it's actually three three sources of heat. So the neutrons themselves, they'll hit in a in a final fusion power plant, and what I'm about to describe actually um, holds for it's going to hold for any magnetic scheme and mostly for any inertial scheme. Um, the neutrons will come off and they will have to hit a blanket where we breed more tritium. Yeah. We have to do that with lithium. So we have to stop the neutrons in some sort of lithium uh, encased material. Due to my time at Princeton, I'm a big fan of liquid metal based um, blankets and probably something with lithium and lead mixed together so we can get a little bit of neutron multiplication because if we only get one tritium for every one neutron we get, we'll never... Um, get enough tritium to sustain the reactor just because of losses. Right. So the neutrons will hit. They will um, slow down, depositing energy into that blanket. They will cause uh, what you could honestly call fission within the lithium. Uh, <laughs> when lithium absorbs a neutron, there's a good argument to be made at fissions. And then the um, that releases net energy. So you get a couple more MeV out of that neutron. And that liquid metal blanket will be... or there's also solid versions will get hot. Um, you'll, that'll be most of your energy. So most uh, of it's from neutrons heating things up. Yeah. And, the and then the fission induced by, okay, yeah. Yeah, the plasma will also radiate energy, which will heat the walls. Probably actually just the blanket, honestly, depending on how the scheme works. There might be a wall. There might be a breeding blanket after the wall or the breeding blankets before the wall. There's a bunch of different ways of doing it there. But that radiative energy will go in. That's a small percentage of it. Um, and then specifically in magnetic schemes, cause you're trying to keep it burning, you have to extract that helium ash or it will kill the reaction. And so in mm -hmm. a tokamak, they have something called diverter and it's these, um, two rings top and bottom where almost all the plasma power is going. And this is a very rough place to engineer. You have to handle, um, tens of megawatts per square meter, which is a heck of a lot more than, uh, most, um, machines are able to handle and so that's really where things like liquid metals uh, might have to play or liquid salts or things like that will have to play a key role right. and those will absorb the incoming plasma energy and you can think about that almost like a particle beam i mean it's it the amount of damage that happens on a diverter is unbelievable but that will pull a lot of that will pull a lot of heat out as well right and all of that will just go into boiling water yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's like the criticism of, of fission, right? As you know, the, the anti-nuclear folks will say is it's the kind of the most complicated way possible to, to burn, to, 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 to turn water into steam. And of course, most of the alternatives other than geothermal re rely on fossil fuels. So we want to transcend that, but you know, that, that brings me to this, this kind of um, naturalistic fallacy, right? Because um, fusion is, is, I wouldn't say necessarily sold by the physicists themselves, but you know, there's certainly a devoted sort of fusion community amongst, say, environmentalists or greens who um, sort of, again, with this appeal to nature fallacy, say, hey, the sun is good, solar panels, wind turbines are good, but hey, the sun is also good in the sky. If we can, if we can put the sun in a bottle, amazing. And, you know, I think we've just gone through in, a, in probably a bit of excruciating detail some of the ways in which, you know, those conditions are not like the sun. <laughs> and, and some of the, the major, major um, difficult engineering challenges and, and difficulties. But, you know, I think foremost amongst those is just, you know, this equation of the power in versus the power out, right? And so you talked about how the sun actually has a, a pretty terrible power density that, um, you know, the heat that's produced per mass of uh, in the center of the sun is similar to what a human body produces in terms of heat. Is uh, that per, per unit volume. Per unit volume. Okay. Yeah. Mass would be quite different. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, the sun is very dense. Very dense. Very dense. Um, but the... Um, you know, like the power density is one thing that I've that I've 
uh, heard about as, as a critique of fusion. Um, you know, in, in fission, you have tiny little fuel rods and fuel pellets surrounded by water, enormous surface area. Um, and you have water, which is a very good heat transfer medium. Um, whereas in fusion, it seems like you're, you know, the limits of, of the surface areas that you can work with are, are much more confined. And so I've, I've seen estimates that you'd need sort of, that the power density is about one-tenth that of fission. So the actual, you know, size of the plant you need to construct for the same amount of energy is, is enormous. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, I'll always, we, uh, I'm going to use a little bit of weasel words just because I'm sure there's someone who can point to some fusion scheme that maybe theoretically could beat that. But in general, that's accurate. Um, fusion, yeah, it's, it, it has these large minimum sizes. And it has um, very specific conditions we have to make. Like if you look at um, the National Ignition Facility, we'll, we'll step away from bashing on Eater and we'll switch to the people in my uh, field. It's this nine meter chamber, um, nine meters in diameter. And it, we put a one millimeter pellet in the middle and blow that up. And <laughs> if, if we're very lucky, um, we'll get a lot of energy out of it. And some of the, some of the inertial confinement proposals um, in theory should actually get really enormous amounts of uh, energy coming out and maybe the power, the power densities start getting competitive. Um, but I think the bigger issue is actually just the minimum size. The fact that, you know, the fission already has this, this problem of fitting into some markets. Um, not that, not that big reactors are bad. Big reactors are actually really great economically, but you know, if, if you need to, to front, $10 billion to build uh, um, an enormous power plant, people start to question that. Now, what if I tell you, you now need to front me $25 billion because the power plant has to be even bigger. Oh, and it uses a technology that's newer and yeah. less reliable and less, you know, it won't have like fusion. Just, we know this just based on our experience with fission fusion will not have the capacity factor of fission because we won't know how to get there. Fission did not start with a good capacity factor. Right. We, we learned. We're going we're gonna to find out that like, oh, the, that, that certain darn valve on the diverter always blows and we have to replace that. But you only, you only learn that by doing. And so, I, yeah, fission's just got a lot, or fusion's got a lot of problems um, on that front. Once, once again, not to say that it's not, you know, viable down the road, but like down the road is way down the road. I'm not, I'm, I'm assuming like I'm probably dead down the road. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the other things I was reading was that, you know, the, the likelihood of, um, you know, what we often refer to as sort of like catastrophic nuclear accidents. And I, I do question that terminology because in terms of the human consequences of even the most uh, severe, you know, nuclear fission accidents, like the, the health consequences are actually, according to the scientific consensus of the best studies, you know, they're significant, we should we should be concerned about them, but but they are on the scale of other industrial accidents, not sort of natural disasters or earth ending catastrophes, right. But that that basically one of the selling points of fusion is that you're less likely to have, you know, a severe accident. Um, but that having, you know, what what's the major impact of say Three Mile Island, for instance, you know, there was zero health impacts, but it it shuttered the utility, right? Because they'd put billions of dollars into this plant and then it became essentially unusable. And with fusion, you're much more likely to, it's much more finicky, especially with a kind of eater type model. And you're much more likely to have to do maintenance and fix things and have minor accidents. And then it's really hard to do that because you have this highly radioactive environment that you need to do the work within because of all that neutron activation. Um, so that, that seemed like a really kind of important engineering consideration in terms of feasibility of, of actually turning fusion into a, a power source that could you know, power our civilization and continue our march to decarbonization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all true. I, I will push back on the TMI thing real fast. Uh, TMI only shut, Three Mile Island only shut down last year. Uh, no, but I mean, the reactor that was shut down, I think it, it had a major economic impact on the utility. Yes, yes, yes uh, it yeah. did. I, mean, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to clarify that because I love the story that TMI uh, operated up until last year and really only closed due to um, odd market distortions in Pennsylvania. Yeah. No, I mean, in Chernobyl as well, right? The other units are Chernobyl. Ran oh, yeah. Chernobyl. That's, that's even funnier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Literally next door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're 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 totally right on the, you know, the the finickiness and the the radioactivity issues and it's all these are all just really really big issues and that's why um you know the 
one of the things that I think is worth looking at, you know, when people look at fusion is stop looking at it. And there's one group I know that that's actually doing this, but you know, stop, stop looking at it as this way to fight climate change, because there's just, there's no high probability path of, for that happening, right? It's just not mm -hmm. going to come online in time. Um, where fusion has interesting capabilities is for, um, you know, get, getting a little out of decarbonization is for things like space. It's because the, the exhaust velocity of a fusion based rocket would be extremely high. So you go really fast, you can use less fuel. And that's where those problems don't matter as much. And that's, I mean, that would be, that's, that's kind of been my, my shift in my mindset as I learn more about fusion and, and learn more about fission and just kind of come to grasp with the real engineering, um, challenges and and the real challenge of climate change and what we need to do is just i i really like fusion i like working on it i think it's super exciting and interesting stuff but uh yeah we we have to pick where we think it would be useful i'm going to keep throwing punches on on our sort of planet earth uh energy generation uh front but um this idea of of of, of parasitic um electricity use so you know that um, I mean, maybe you can just explain that to us a bit better, but from what I understand, there's a lot of energy required, even when you're not, um, you know, fusing, uh, molecules or sorry, atoms in the, in the plasma just to, to power all of the machines that are making that possible, at least in oh. the eater. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, eater has to, um, eater specifically has the cooling for those monstrous magnets, which, I'm not sure how it compares to the cooling for the Large Hadron Collider, but man, it's got to be on the same order of magnitude. So you're talking megawatts and megawatts of uh, cooling there. Um, and then you also have to, you know, for any for any future power plant, you're going to have to pump all that liquid metal around I was talking about. You're going to have to have a full reprocessing plant on site to pull the tritium out. Uh, and that's, that's a bit difficult. You can ask the people that have worked on... Uh, say the the integral fast reactor project here in the United States, how that um, ends up working out, uh, at least politically speaking. Yeah. And um, the other issue is that they're going to be running these big radio frequency heaters. Uh, you can think of them like a microwave oven for plasma to at least get the plasma up to temperature. In theory, if we're real lucky, we can get it up to power. We can get the magnets turned on and cold. And uh, then we can start just cranking out power. But for that's that's for a future system. For Eater, it's going to be consuming power just constantly. Yeah, uh, because it will also be pulsed. That's uh, that's something that's not talked about very often. But tokamaks are not at the point right now where they can operate continuously, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime super soon. Uh, so yeah. now you have even more. Uh, they call it circulating power, and your circulating power fraction really hurts your economics. There's a, there's a recent very good paper published um, about this for inertial confinement fusion, because as you can imagine, we just have to have circulating power for ICF. There's, we have to recharge those lasers or recharge the big uh, capacitor banks that um, do Z-pinch or you know, whatever, whatever scheme we're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a big focus on trying to lower it. But yeah, that, that circulating power is just a huge issue. And it's something you have to, you have to minimize as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like efficiency off of a thermal plant, you know, for going from megawatts thermal to megawatts electric, I think it's, you know, good efficiencies around 40%. So either if it's making, I think 500 megawatts thermal produces something like 230 electric, but then ends up consuming probably more than that 230 just to cool its uh, magnets and, and those other processes you mentioned. So that's oh, yeah. another major, major issue, I think, to making these things commercially viable. And from what I understand, then you need to basically, you have to be at an enormous um, output in order to ever sort of get economic in terms of generating more power than you're, you're consuming. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why you see projects like Demo. And I think Proto is the, supposed to be the one afterwards. Um, you know, they, they're, they're talking about gigawatt, multi-gigawatt scale facilities to even, you know, the, so you have to have turbine sized for that, but you're not going to be selling that much power because you have to consume some of it back inside. So the, the only way to get around that, you know, issue is you just have to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. And assuming mm -hmm. you can do that, let's just make that wild assumption right there that it works. You make, you make the power plant, you somehow get someone to fund your $60 billion um, monster power plant. 
what grid are you going to sell that power to? Who wants a power plant that big? Yeah. There, there's a general rule of thumb that you can't put two, you can't have one power plant take up too much of your grid because what if it goes down? Right, right. So <clears throat> I guess all this leads me to wonder, um, you know, in terms of what's motivating the research, obviously there's kind of the pure science curiosity, but I mean, this is a, this is a project with just an absolutely enormous budget, right? And obviously we are always operating within circumstances where our resources are confined and we're making choices or at least you know the major governments contributing to eater are making choices to pour billions and billions of dollars into this you know is it that they're not seeing that this is not a likely path towards a viable electricity generation or energy generation tool are they are they kind of blinded to that by you know the excitement of this high technology challenge um, is there some sort of secret app, like weapons application or something else that they're after space exploration a- applications that they're trying to get through Eater? Like I, as an outsider looking at this, you know, who's very concerned about practicality, who's concerned about deep decarbonization on a fast schedule, um, who's gaining some literacy in terms of looking at the benefits and drawbacks of various energy generation technologies. You know, it, it looks insane to me that anyone would think this is going to be a serious energy producing source, you know, within I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say 30 years, but within centuries, um, you know, in terms of the funders that are driving this, like what, what, what do you believe their motivation is? So the important thing to remember with fusion is that there's, there's kind of a couple things going on. And with eater specifically, um, I, I think a good comparison is the international space station. If you look at, if you look to people in the space community, a lot of them don't like the ISS or they didn't like it at the time when it was being built because it was very, very, very expensive for what it was. But the point of the ISS was beyond just building a space station. And the point of Eater is beyond that too. It's politics and it's a jobs program and all these other things. Hmm. And that helps lock politicians into the idea of it. On top of that, I think there is um, in the older community, both in the, in, in the fusion community and in, Um, politically, they're locked into that older dream of fusion and they see fusion almost through a, I don't know, like if you ever played the Fallout games, almost through that kind of lens Mm. uh, and see fission as the the evil bomb and fusion as the bright future and Eater is obviously the way forward because that's what they've heard. Um, And, you know, there's good scientific reasoning for it, but personally, I... I would kind of rather fund some of the more innovative ideas. If, If it was up to me, if I was the grand czar, I would probably put my money into a bunch of smaller, more unique ideas at other labs um, because, you know, you got to, you might get more bang for your buck that way. Um, And it's at least funds innovative thinking and innovative plasma physics. Um, The other side of it, and this is an aside for my, my field here in inertial confinement fusion land is um, there, there is weapons funding. And that's why the ICF community is, relatively well-funded here in the United States. Um, and in the France, ICEF was what again, sorry? The... Inertial confinement fusion. Okay. Um, yeah. In the United States and France, I can't speak to China and Russia. I know they have programs. I don't know what happens there. Uh, but in the United States and France, uh, we have large lasers. The U.S. also has a very large, uh, what's called Z-Pinch facility. Uh, and these facilities are part of our stockpile stewardship program. We have not set off a nuclear weapon since the early 1990s. And mm. we use this program to maintain the skills of a weapon scientist, maintain the training pipeline for weapon scientists if we ever need them, and also to try to make sure all of our codes that tell us that the nuclear weapons work actually make sense Uh Little known secret, most of the physics in a detonating nuclear weapon is not well understood. It is kind of a big magic black box powered by the beauty of fission that lets you cheat. Um, if you uh, look at the energy density and the the sort of conditions that a fission explosion gives you, it's like it's a no brainer that you can make fusion happen. You're like, duh, I could I could put a box of anything in there and probably get fusion out of it. Um, so. That's that's where the ICF funding comes from. There's de- you can debate all over the place as to how worthwhile it is, but that's at least where the money comes from for things like the National Ignition Facility and the Z machine down in Sandia. Wow. And I think the fact that they also are able to do very, very cool science 
and uh, work towards maybe energy in the far future is probably a worthwhile trade. But that's that's definitely the motivation. <laughs> that's that's super interesting. I, I didn't know that there hadn't been a weapons tested since the since the '90s. Um, and then the use of of this laser technology can give you like information as to whether the bomb would actually go off. You're saying, or it's it's used without going into a ton of detail here. Just that's. Um, was I understanding you correctly? Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff in that just sits under this stockpile stewardship um, umbrella, which is you you know you you try to set off a fusion explosion and you use what happened um, in the in the failed fusion explosion. I mean, it still explodes, but it didn't do what you wanted. The point of NIF, hilariously enough, by the way, I don't know if you caught on to the name. Ignition means that we got a full fusion chain reaction. Right. And spoiler alert, NIF has not done that. NIF has not reached ignition. So it's kind of funny it was named NIF. Right. Uh, but they, they were much more confident uh, when they named it than, uh, than they are today. <clears throat> but yeah. the, you know, th there's a lot of physics you can learn from it. If we could actually ignite the fusion reaction, that would be extremely useful for um, national security physics reasons. We have these huge supercomputers that are used to try to double check that we understand that our nukes will still work. Most of the nuclear weapons were made in the 60s. And if you think wow. about like a car from the 60s, if you had to turn it on, would you trust it would turn on? And the point of a nuke is to never be used, but it sure better be able to work if it had to work. It's this, it's this weird double-edged sword. You can't set it off, right. but you want it to be able to go off. So how do, yeah. you, know, how do you know it will turn on? That and, it will, yeah. Yeah, and so that's, that's the point of stockpile stewardship. Um, and that's where the funding, that, that's where... Uh, the vast majority of the, um, <coughs> uh, excuse me, ICF funding comes from. Wow. I hope you were allowed to say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have, I, I have no class, no classification. I'm just a graduate student. I can say stuff like that. I love it. I love it. I mean, I heard one of the reasons that fusion very early on, fusion research was kind of classified and kept very, very close to the chest of the governments working on it was that actually there was, big proliferation concerns because you're making all the ingredients um, or you, you have the potential to make all the ingredients of a, uh, of a, of a hydrogen bomb in terms of, you know, with all those juicy neutrons flowing around, you can take uranium 238, turn it into plutonium 239 and make a bunch of tritium. So you, you basically, I'm not, I don't think that's probably a very economic way to make the ingredients for a hydrogen bomb, but apparently that was part of the reason for the initial programs being quite secretive. Yeah, so as far as I understand it, they were kept secretive for kind of two reasons, because we were getting towards this, what they called at the time the super, which was the hydrogen bomb, um, of, which, of course, the primary way to keep people from getting a hydrogen bomb is keeping them from getting a, a, a fission bomb, because uh, that's the trigger. But the other concern was competitive, right? This, this whole fission thing seemed to be a really big deal. Nuclear power was becoming a deal for the Navy, and uh, they figured, well, well, heck, if fusion works too, we we can't let the can't let those darn commies get it, right? Uh, right. And so they kept it all heavily classified. But you are well, you were getting at something very key there too. You hear sometimes uh, fusion brought up as uh, proliferation proof that you can't proliferate nuclear weapons. But if you can make if you have neutrons, you can make the the you know fuel for a nuclear weapon. Uh, yeah. You can use a particle accelerator, you can use a fusion reactor, you can use a fission reactor. We can argue about which one's the most efficient. And But what it really comes down to is the same IEA controls have to be there one way or another. You have to have people come in and inspect and make sure it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just seems like there's no there's no free lunch. And I mean, it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, Michael Schellenberger talks a lot about sort of just the this incredible jump that we made at the beginning of the fission era. And that, you know, just in terms of unlocking the power of the atom and the energy density of the atom <clears throat> and how, you know, yes, we're doing all these like innovative designs, but really the biggest leap was just unleashing fission essentially, right? Um, in terms yeah. of energy. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, I think in terms of these, these energy sources that don't yet exist, there's a huge temptation to only look at, you know, the optimistic, like I think maybe humans tend to be very optimistic about future technologies and we're just incredibly pessimistic about what already exists because we have to deal with all of the you know the, the the problems as they arise and the maintenance issues and 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 troubleshooting um but it's it's very reminiscent sort of talking about fusion you know in terms of the a lot of the advanced reactor um types as well and you know one of the things that uh, lidsky says in his essay is that you know 
yes, we were able to create, you know, Zeppelins and supersonic passenger aviation and breeder fission reactors. Those were technical successes, but they weren't engineering successes, right? There was big reasons why they didn't um, become a, a dominant technology. Um, and <clears throat> I just, yeah, I just, I'm seeing this big kind of overlay between fusion and, and advanced nuclear in a lot of ways. I completely agree. And that feels, honestly, I have to agree because it feels exactly like my own personal journey through the nuclear world. You know, you feel like everyone kind of gets into it, especially if you're young and excited with the advanced reactors and you're all about thorium or breeder reactors. Or um, I think, I honestly think for me, it was probably the pebble bed uh, just because I came out of learning about the rockets and there's a, there's a lot of crossover technology there. And um, you learn about them and you think they're the best and you're like these light water reactors or these can do's who cares about those Those are old school and terrible. And, you know, I, I, I made the leap all the way up to fusion. And uh, it's interesting is because as I was taking this path, I was learning more about fission and I, it kind of came back around me. I was like, you know, those light water reactors are looking pretty good. And as I've learned more and more and more, I've kind of just realized that all the problems are still going to be there no matter what the technology is. And they're, they're arguably going to be harder. And it's not to say we shouldn't work on those technologies, but specifically to solve a problem right now, you don't have to reinvent the wheel and make, you know, make some new magical thing. You just have to use what you already know works. And yeah, just experience matters in terms of what you were mentioning, like early capacity factors in, in nuclear fission were terrible. Um, but we've been running, you know, light water or sorry, we've been running, yeah, pressurized light and heavy water reactors for 60 years. And we really know how to use them properly now. And, and in Ontario, <laughs> I got a plug in our little Ontario fact here, but um, one of our can do plants has just set the record of any thermal generation plant in world history for the longest run. I think we're at a thousand and seventy five days today. Um, oh, wow. You know, Right. So it's just it's it's insane, um, you know, what's possible with with learning, learning how to use an existing technology optimally. And I think, you know, it's funny, you know, you're saying like, you know, like with bombs or whatever, like if this 1960s car, would you still want to would you still be sure if it would start up? And I mean, that's that's kind of different than what we're talking about. But I think there's a lot of people who are like, you know, can do that's like a 1950s technology. Like, surely we should be doing something totally different and new now. Um, but it's something that works really well and it's kicked coal off our grid in Ontario and it's, it's, you know, been very reliable, um, and, and accident free. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting theme to take up. Oh, I agree. I, and I personally love the can do. I was, uh, as I found out about it, I think it was my, Oh, junior year or something when we learned more about specific reactors and I learned all about the can do. And I, uh, I was the one weirdo in my class full of um, you know, in Idaho where the fast reactors from, so you have to be a sodium react sodium fast reactor fan in Idaho or you'll get beat up. Uh, <laughs> I, I, am like, you know, I like the sodium fast reactor. Don't get me wrong, but have you seen this can do thing? I'm, I'm pretty into that natural uranium. That's, that's a neat trick. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's hilarious. You're not the first, um, non-Canadian I've heard who, I think Canadians tend to actually be pretty negative about the can do, but you know, talking to other uh, nuclear nerds around the world, a lot of them are like, I'm not supposed to say this. I'm supposed to say it's all about the AP 1000, but I got to say the can do is my favorite yeah. reactor. And it might be a grass is greener on the other side thing. Right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, listen, Garrett, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Um, this was super fun. And, you know, you just kind of reached out to me. I think you'd listened to a couple of the previous episodes and where Fusion had come up and you were like, hey, man, and we just started chatting. And it's awesome that... Uh, you know, I get to uh, interview a listener. Um, and I understand you you started listening just at the beginning of, uh, well, I guess I sort of, the podcast came out at the beginning of some of the early lockdowns. So um, it's a real it's a real thrill to, to be able to interview a listener. Yeah, it's been a thrill to be on. Thanks for having me. All right, Garrett. Um, good luck with everything, man. Thank you. You too. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye. Hello, dear listeners. I just wanted to apologize for the terrible audio quality on my end of this recording. Thank you for sticking with me for the full hour of this podcast. I hope it wasn't too painful on your ears. Uh, just a reminder again that um, I have a second podcast out now called the We Can Do It podcast. Can do as in a Canadian deuterium uranium reactor. Um, and it is available on all the major um, podcast platforms out there. Um, we've got three episodes out now. The um, first is on... The hell is the first one on again? Ah, yeah. Ontario's Ultra 
low emissions grid. The second one is on um, SMRs in uh, northern applications, particularly Canada's far north. And the third one is looking at the uh, union-driven uh, side of nuclear energy. So um, give that uh, give that podcast a listen to as well. And um, look forward to talking to you next time. And I swear I will fix this microphone issue once and for all. Thanks for sticking with us here at Decouple. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.